Let me start with three comments on Zechariah at 11. Uh, at 11. Good start. <laughs> three comments on Zechariah 11, just, just to begin. One of the things that you'll notice at the outset is it's another chapter on leadership. That's what chapter 10 was focused on. And particularly the message here is why theirs has been and will continue to be so bad. The main image uh, for leadership in chapter 10 was this leadership image of the shepherd, and that's still in play here. So, for example, God tells Zechariah to become a shepherd. You look at it in verse 4, become shepherd of the flock. Verse 7, so I became shepherd of the flock. Verse 15, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. So the issue of leadership is still, in, is still in view, and whatever the main point of chapter 11 is, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bear uh, some connections to that, leadership. The second thing is that Zechariah 11 is a notoriously difficult chapter to interpret. Sounds like I'm already caveating, right? You know, it's like poor preacher, poor guy, it's so hard for him to do his job and all of that. It's not like that. Uh, but let me point out a few ways it's, it is very difficult. One of those is the genre. And so some people say that what you have here in Zechariah 11 is two just physical, absolute synacts. And we'll talk a little bit more about what that means because that's what I think is going on here. Or some people say there's not enough detail there. And so what you find Zechariah doing is telling a parable or an allegory for spiritual meaning. I think it's a synact. I think that, but... There's some discussion about that. A second thing is the time. Is this in the sequence of Zechariah 11, or is he making a general statement about this is what happens and has happened? It's happened in our history, Israelites, and it's going to continue to happen until God does something great to intervene. So I think there is something in historical succession. I do think there is something to the chronology here, but I really think the application tends to be broader than that. And then, not only is the genre kind of there up to debate, um, the time, how are we to understand the time in which it takes place, uh, but also there are these, you know, really curiously difficult parts. I'll give you one example. It's the only example. It's like in verse 8, it says, in one month, I destroyed the three shepherds. There's no consensus on what that means. Joyce Baldwin, good commentator uh, from yesteryear, said Quote, these words are probably the most enigmatic in the Old Testament. Now, if you've ever read the Old Testament, that's a pretty high bar, okay? And so whether or not she's right or not, just the fact that it's in the running tells you something about it. So it's like, oh, it's so hard. What are we doing talking about Zechariah 11? The details might be foggy around the edges, not the main point. The main point is going to be clear. Expect that to be clear, okay? So there are parts that are difficult, but the main point of it is not difficult. And then the third uh, point I want to make at the outset, it's my most favorite point uh, of the outset, is it's written in such an intriguing way that I just can't help but be drawn into it. We're going to look at it in a little bit more detail, but Zechariah 11 is written as though God wrote this play, and he's putting on a stage production, and it's got a very important message in it, and he casts Zechariah as the lead. Zechariah is going to play out this part of the play that God wrote with this very important message. So Zechariah is an actor 
in chapter 11. He, Zechariah becomes a thespian. Thespus, by the way, a contemporary of Zechariah, a Greek who supposedly invented acting. And the way he invented acting was whenever he recited lines of poetry, he would sound like he would embody the character of the line he was quoting. And Zechariah is doing something like that. He's becoming an actor here. How he goes about it is left to the imagination, though. Very efficient account. So one of the things that we see is, 21st century, we would think if somebody is an actor and he's telling you about the part that he plays, he's going to tell you about that from his perspective. What's going to come to the front is he's going to say, this is how I saw the role and this is how I experienced it and so on. And that's not what we find in Zechariah 11. It's the parts that dominate because the message is central, not the actor's experience. It's not the prophet's experience. It's the message of Zechariah that gets pushed to the forefront. All right. What he does is called a sign act. Now, we've already seen this at the very end of chapter 6 when Zechariah is told to put a king's crown on the head of Joshua the high priest. He's not literally uh, making the high priest the king. What he's doing through that action is he's showing that there is going to be a day that there's going to be an ultimate priest king who comes. So he's showing something through the action, a sign act. The action is the message. And that's kind of what's going on here. Like I said, some people say that that's not what's going on. I think it's a sign act. That's the way we're going to treat it. And what Zechariah does here is he becomes a shepherd. That's part of it. He becomes a leader of God's people. Now, in what way? Does he actually take on the leadership role? That's possible. I, I, I think he's uh, doing more to act it out to give the, God's people a picture. So what he does is a demonstration of what's going on, okay? Um, how do you imagine something like that? Well, I, right or wrong, I can't help but see it this way. I imagine as kind of LARPing. You ever heard of LARPing? It's uh, what, what adults do in city parks. Uh, they, they take on these called live-action role-playing. And so they'll take on medieval characters and they act out these parts or something like that. I think that's kind of what Zechariah is doing here. Or you might think of it as a game of charades where he's doing these signs and people can see these signs and get the message through the signs. Is he the only guy who did that? No, there's actually Ezekiel the prophet also did some sign acts. So the action is the message. It's a big deal. Um, Interesting to see what the Lord calls Zechariah to do. Uh, because if the action is the message, he says, become shepherd. And then what that shepherd does is going to be the message. How it's going to play out. So he tells him to do two sign acts in the passage. Two. And the first one is the longest one. Verses 4 through 14. And what he tells him in the first sign act is become shepherd of the doomed flock. First, uh, Zechariah gets called into this role. The Lord calls him to take on the role of a shepherd. Become a shepherd, he says, at the beginning of verse 4. And then sort of raises the question, because he's not just becoming a shepherd in general, like dress up like a shepherd or something like that. It's become a shepherd of a particular flock. And this flock is described. It's a doomed flock. And they're doomed because they're going to be slaughtered. It gives you an idea of what the Lord is telling Zechariah to do. Not just become a shepherd, but become the shepherd of this particular flock. 
this doomed flock's shepherd, this flock that is soon to be slaughtered, you're going to be their shepherd. And then you realize who the flock is. The flock is Israel. It's Judah. So the message is probably going to be, say something about being their shepherd. Right? That, that relationship. And in verses 5 and 6, you get this kind of summary. It's a general description of the whole situation. Why is the flock doomed? Well, in verse 5, because their leaders, their owners and shepherds, don't care anything about them, right? They, they just use and abuse them. You see these, uh, those who buy them, slaughter them, go unpunished. They sell them. Thank God I've become rich off of my exploitation of these vulnerable people who are so easy to oppress. The Lord has been so kind to me. You see the sarcasm in that, right? The reason that they're in this situation is because their leaders abuse them without care or thought. Now, why are they in that situation? It says in verse 6, because the Lord had withdrawn His grace from them. I will no longer, he says, have pity on the inhabitants of this land. Each of them will fall into the hand of his neighbor and each of them into the hand of his king. The Persian overlords are going to have their way. Uh, their neighbors is going to be a brutal place to live, and uh, that's what they're experiencing. And the whole land is going to be crushed. That word means in verse six there. That word's like pulverized. It's like to grind it into dust. You're going to live in a place where every aspect of civilization, every aspect of ease uh, that makes this a good place to live, is going to be ground into nothing. It's going to be destroyed. There's nothing left of it. And the result is that there's this crushing. Now, remember we were talking about time. I think it's written as though all of this has already happened, but watch out, it might happen again. I mean, if you're the sort, if you're the shepherd rejecting sort, then this is the kind of thing that could happen again. It had already happened in the north in 722 BC with the Assyrian invasion. And it had already happened in the south in 586 BC with the Babylonian invasion. But it's written in such a way is the reason that it, it could happen again and that it's already happened is because th these are people who have rejected and despised the leadership of God. So there's the warning in place. Anyway, as it goes through, uh, by the time you get to verse 7, Zechariah starts acting out this role. And it says at the very beginning of verse 7 that he becomes their shepherd and names his two staffs. Since I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slaughtered by the sheep traders, and I took two staffs, and one I named favor, and the other I named union. All right, so they're doomed to be slaughtered. I became their shepherd, and I took two staffs, brought two sticks. Are you, and you're asking yourself, is that what a shepherd's staff looked like 2,500 years ago? No. It's not at all what a shepherd's staff looked like. But it's a representation. So he's not actually a shepherd of sheep. He's got two staffs that's so going to be a ready image for them, a physical indication that represents something. And he names them, and it's a funny thing to do. It sounds a little imaginary friendly, doesn't it? Like a kid who names his teddy bear or something like that. And to name a stick is something, but it, it's not imaginary friendly at all. It turns out he, he has two names. One staff is named favor. That word could be translated like grace or kindness. And the other staff is named Union. And what he's saying is, these are physical representations of something. 
These are physical representations of the shepherd's relationship with his flock. One physical representation of that relationship is grace, is favor. And another is union. So anyway, he names his staffs. You start to get the idea who the shepherd is, don't you? The shepherd is the Lord. Zechariah has been called to stand in the place of the Lord. And the, the relationship being pictured then is the relationship between the Lord and his flock and their relationship with him. How does it go? Well, it's the, the next thing that he does at the very end of verse 7 and verse 8, he tends the flock, but it doesn't go well. At the end of verse 7, he says, so I tended the flock. And then he says, in one month, I destroyed the three shepherds. And I already told you that's, you know, Joyce Baldwin called that the most enigmatic uh, little phrase in the whole Old Testament. And whether that's the case or not, I can tell you that all of that stuff has been variously interpreted. One month, probably variously interpreted, probably means just a short period of time. Who are those three shepherds? Maybe your guess is as good as mine. There are lots of theories out there. Some people say, I think this is a bad theory, that it refers to the types of leaders that God's people have had. Prophets, priests, and kings. And that all of those are done away with. I don't think that's right. Maybe it's uh, the number three is sort of symbolic of completeness. And so you should think about all, in general, all their leaders have been removed. And that uh, versus having three specific dudes in mind. Some people say it's, we should have three specific dudes in mind. It's the last three kings of Judah. Some people say this is from the Seleucid period. I know you came with Seleucid history, all like in the forefront of your mind this morning, but it's, out of, uh, it's a general out of the conquest of Alexander the Great. One of those generals was a guy who established the Seleucid kingdom, and they occupied this area for a while. Maybe it's one of their kings, or, or I mean, three of their kings are Judah's high priests. I think as good a chance as any for what it's worth, it could be referring to the idols in the region around the place. Those are get, all of those get removed. I don't know. That's not really the point, though. We don't know that for sure. The emphasis is not the shepherds who get removed. The emphasis is that they are removed and who remains. And there's the shepherd who remains. And how does that go? All of those are removed, and this is a relationship between one shepherd and his flock. And how does that go? Well, the relationship is not good. He says in the end of verse 8, I became impatient with them and the flock despised me. Doesn't go well. And so what does he do? The, the third thing in your handout, the next action that he takes here is he breaks the first staff, right? The first staff is favor. And it starts in verse 9 with his resignation. So I'm no longer going to be your shepherd. We're going to let the consequences be whatever the consequences will be. Right? You hate me as a shepherd, you won't listen to me as a shepherd, and you want life without a shepherd. So here you go, but that comes with consequences. Sheep aren't like, you know, self-sufficient type of animals. So that comes with consequences like the brutalities, and this is what he describes in verse 9, the brutalities of a city under siege, like death and destruction and cannibalism, which is actually what happened in their history. And so he says, he breaks the staff. I know what you're thinking, right? But what he says, remember, the staff is a physical symbol. It represents uh, this aspect of the shepherd's relationship with his people. He says, favor, grace. 
we had a relationship that goes all the way back. Right? And, and what is that? All the way back, I established this under Moses, where you came in under a promise, and I said I'd be your God, and I would watch out for you, and I was devoted to you, absolutely devoted to you, but you violated it again and again and again, and you rejected me as your shepherd. And so we had this relationship, a sacred promise, and that is broken, right? So, yeah, tough guy. So. <laughs> and maybe you're asking yourself, did that hurt? A little bit? Uh, <laughs> But you see the relationship that he has with them. He's saying, and they get this physical demonstration that they see all of this relationship is demonstrated in this prop. And it's over, right? They see it's broken. It's been destroyed. What does that mean? He says in verse 11, people are watching and they know what it means, the sheep traders. And they realize he's saying that God's relationship with us has been destroyed. It's been annulled. This word is from the Lord. The Lord is talking about their relationship with them. The next thing he does is that he asks for, and this is in verses 12 and 13, he, he receives his wages, but he ends up throwing them uh, at the potter. Verse 12, he asks the people if they want to pay him for his prophecy. He says, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. It's a testy relationship. And what do they do? They pay him 30 pieces of silver. Old Testament law, that's the price of a slave. Some debate. Is that an adequate price? Um, you, you hear, uh, I don't know, this, it's kind of interesting to hear how the commentators do it because Zechariah follows that up seemingly sarcastically by referring to this, this 30 pieces of silver as the quote-unquote lordly price that they paid him. And some people say, well, that's quite a bit of money. And some people say, no, it's not a lot of money. The main point, though, is what happens next. In in verse 13, the Lord tells him, you're not going to keep that money. You're going to go to my house, and you're going to throw it into the the temple. It's going to go to the potter. So it's a rejection of the money that's that's given, but where it goes is pretty significant, but it's the temple is the place where it goes. And he says, you're going to give this to the potter. Now, who's the potter? Well, he's in the house of the Lord. He's in the temple. So that represents something. It may have been somebody who took that silver. Remember, they have Persian overlords there, right? They're they're occupied territory. And they would take the silver there, melt it down, and send it off uh, to the king as taxes, to Persia as taxes. And the significance here is that there's no kind of binding sacred relationship between God and the Israelites, prophet, uh, temple activity, and so on under the old covenant. That's been broken. It's been destroyed. So uh, then finally you get to verse 14, and you get to the second staff, union. And he says, Then I broke my second staff, union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And uh, that represents, right, this, this kingdom between north and south. Now, they would have grown accustomed to this by now because it had been so far into their history. But that was divided after Solomon's reign. You know, there's this break, Solomon's son's kind of a jerk. He's, 
He's one of those guys, he's arrogant without a basis for confidence. You know what I mean? You've met him, right? Solomon's son. He's all over the place. Somebody who thinks he's a big deal but doesn't really have a good reason to think he's a very big deal. And people like that kind of irritate the people around him. That's what happened. And there's this break between the southern kingdom and the northern tribes of Israel. Two different kingdoms. And what God says is, so here's the second staff, right? I'll do it on this side, left leg, so I'll have two even bruises. But what he says is like, listen, you were a people, and you think that you were put together and that your relationship with me is separate. Actually, you were, you were a unified whole as a people because I put you together. You were there by my relationship with you. You were there because I was your shepherd. And that's broken, violently broken. And so all of that has been destroyed. But you were what you were under my leadership. And this fragmentation, this uh, severity that you're under is because of the withdrawal of my favor, the withdrawal of my shepherding that you rejected. That's why you are where you are. I was your shepherd and you rejected me. And these are the consequences. And that leads into the second sign act. Get to the second sign act, and that's shorter, less detailed, verses 15 through 17. And what God tells Zechariah to do is to become a foolish shepherd, he says. Verse 15, take once more the equipment of a foolish shepherd. What's that? What's the equipment? We're not sure. Maybe it's a broken staff, you know, maybe it's a, a shepherd's staff, you know, shepherd's clothing or something like that. We're not real clear about that, but we are clear on this word. Foolish. We use it in our context to mean like somebody who's not very smart, kind of has that meaning in the Old Testament scripture. But the real meaning it has in Old Testament scripture is the opposite of wise, and the root of wisdom is fear of the Lord. A fool is somebody who's on the opposite end of the spectrum from that. A fool is someone who has rejected the Lord. Someone who is a wicked shepherd, an anti-shepherd. A shepherd who does the exact opposite of what a good shepherd does. And he says, Zechariah, here's the second role. You were embodying me. You were representing me to become the good shepherd of the flock. And this time you're going to be a wicked shepherd, a foolish shepherd, an anti-shepherd. You see the reason in verse 16. God says, behold, I'm raising up in the land a shepherd who does not... Uh, care for those being destroyed or seek the young or heal the maimed or nourish the healthy, but devours the flesh of the fat ones, tearing off even their hooves. Right? It's brutal. This is what I'm going to give you a picture of. The people had a good shepherd, but they rejected him. And now they're going to get the opposite kind. You had the Lord, now you're going to get a Nebuchadnezzar. You had the Lord, and now you're going to get a Cyrus. You had shepherds who watched over your souls. Now you're going to get these kind of shepherds, these spiritual leaders who exploit you because they can get rich off of you. They can advantage themselves because you don't have any leverage in the relationship. That's the kind of shepherd I am raising up because you, you, you rejected the good shepherd. The kind of shepherd who doesn't protect the flock, doesn't watch over the flock, doesn't seek the lost ones, doesn't tend them and feed them. Instead, who is utterly brutal and ruthless with them to his own pleasure, to his own gain. That's what you demanded. You're welcome. That's what you get. It's not the last word, though. What about these, this wicked shepherd, this kind of shepherd? 
In verse 17, he says, there's a word of woe. Woe to my worthless shepherd who deserts the flock. May the sword strike his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered, his right eye utterly blinded. He's saying the Lord is not going to abandon them finally and fully. Woe against the worthless shepherd. It's a word of judgment and ruin. You know, the eye and the arm are going to be representing, you know, his ability to rule over the flock. He's going to be totally disempowered from doing that. He's going to be, he acted in tyranny. He, he acted in tyranny, and now he's going to be the one who's tyrannized. The Lord is going to judge them, and that leaves open. Maybe the Lord's going to do something there. Maybe something ahead. So let's recap the two Sinaks. The first is the rejection of the Lord as their shepherd. And the second is the abuse of shepherds that take his place and may continue to take his place. But even so, there's a word of grace. Now, what's the significance of Zechariah 11? What should you see in there? Well, this passage is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. Right? The shepherd, the good one, who gets rejected. What do we see? The New Testament makes this connection. Jesus came as the good shepherd. And they rejected him, Jew and Gentile. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. He laid down his life for us so that he could bear our sin. He took it up again so that we could live. And what God does when the, with this rejection of the ultimate good shepherd of Jesus, whenever he comes, what God does is he takes this rejection and betrayal of the good shepherd of, of Jesus, and he accomplishes the greatest good in history from it. That's what God did. God did that. Do you accept this? That the good shepherd came, and the answer, the final answer in history was Jesus. This passage shows us that this initial regathering, you've got to think in Zechariah's time, right? All the people have been in exile, and they're returning. God is calling his people home. Is that the ultimate answer? This zillionth offering of grace? Is that going to be the fix? It's not. It won't be the ultimate fix. The Lord knows this. People are going to continue to reject him as shepherd, as the one who led. They're going, to, uh, uh, they're going to hate belonging to him. They're going to hate following him. They're going to kick against the goads constantly. This regathering of the exiles is not going to solve the problem of the wayward, human, sinful heart. But it also, Zechariah 11 puts these elements in. God's shepherding over his people. Good shepherd, rejected. Let's get rid of him for 30 pieces of silver. And these elements are embodied in Jesus, right? Who comes and he does address the, the problem in this full final way. The one who laid down his life uh, and the one who uh, took it up again. So that your sin could be born and so that you could have life through him even though you're under the curse of death because of the wages of sin. Zechariah 11 points us to Jesus. Where we go, they, they look at it and they probably went, this is a bit of a head-scratcher. How does this get solved if we keep rejecting the shepherd? And what God does is he says, yeah, you're going to reject the shepherd and the shepherd's going to win you. So what do you do? What do, what do we do with Zechariah 11? Let me give you two things. First, follow the good shepherd. Right, we know who he is now. Uh, and, and this is a big deal because you could go, well, that's not such a big point, but we are of the, the uh, shepherd-rejecting sort, 
In your heart and in your mind, you have this sort of shepherd-rejecting way about you. And I do too. And so we should be on guard. Mm, We don't always like the one who comes in, the one who's good. And that's the point. You need the shepherd or you can't be saved. The nice thing about this one is he's called the good shepherd. Not all shepherds are good. And Jesus came and he proved who he is. How do you know you could trust him? He's proven that to you. He came here, he demonstrated his righteousness and power. He died for sinners. He triumphed over the grave to offer you a free salvation. It's free to you, but it costs him everything. So you can trust him because that's who he is. That's why when I prayed this week, you know, about preparing for this and the sermon about who would be here, it would be this. Get anything out of this is Jesus is the good shepherd. He's proven who he is. Give your life to him. Follow him. And trust yourself to him. You know, you might, you might be in a great spot or you might be in the, the depths. So you might be in trouble. But he's the good shepherd regardless of who you are. Follow him. That's my prayer. That's Jesus. He's the good shepherd. Do not despise him. Do not reject him. Hear his message and follow him. The second thing. Since he's the good shepherd and you're of the sheep, if you believe, always be poised to heed his word. Now that's ordained through the ministry of Scripture, kind of like what I'm doing right now. That what, what God has seen to is that the way his sheep should be tended is we should share his word together. And so I'm charged as, say, a preacher guy. I'm supposed to be faithful to preach the word, to share the word. In other words, whenever I get done, you should be able to go, this has been way more about Zechariah 11 and what God's message is in Zechariah 11 than it is in the preacher guy, right? The message is the forefront. And I'm accountable to that. You have life group leaders and their job is to be faithful to share scripture with you, to teach you the scripture. If you're teaching a kid's class, the way you prepare you're, you're accountable to be faithful, to teach that. What a privilege to have these young souls, these young lives, and say, I'm going to pour in uh, to this young person because they need Jesus. And you're going to plant those seeds, and you may not see much for a while. One of the cool things that if, you're, if you've taught children uh, over a long period of time is to see these kids, and you know they're a mess. They're squirrely, and they're talking back, and they won't sit down and be quiet and all that. And next thing you know, one day they're 35, and you're old, and they say, you know something? I don't even remember all the stuff that you taught me. All I know is that God used that to make such a powerful difference in my life. And you can't do that because of who you are. You can do that because you love them and you're sharing God's word with them. That's what they desperately need, okay? So we're accountable to do that. But the flock is also accountable to hear and do it. James 1 The Word. This is God's Word. Don't just hear it. Don't just know it. Do it. Put it into practice. Don't be somebody because it's shallow faith just to hear it and not put it into practice. Or Hebrews 13, 17. Listen, you have these leaders that God has given you, and the Bible uses not very sensitive words. Obey your leaders and submit to them, and here's why. They're watching over your souls. They care about you. That God put them there to be to your advantage, so don't make it a hard job to see to your well-being. Now, there are limitations on this, of course, right? One of those is you shouldn't submit yourself to a spiritual bully, and they're out there. Somebody's just pushing you around and bullying you, you should reject that. You don't have to put up with that. 
Um, if somebody, uh, you shouldn't accept teaching that distorts Scripture. Somebody trying to manipulate, that's dangerous and that sort of thing. But when somebody's opening up Scripture, and what's being shared is, this is what the Lord is telling us as His people. Let's make it clear, and let's respond as God's people so that we can honor Him. Yeah, you should submit to that. We should all submit to that. You should be teachable. You should be leadable. It's always going to come through this imperfect, limited vessel. That's all you get. That's all you get. If it's me, you get an imperfect, limited vessel. If it's Brad, you get an imperfect, limited vessel. It's in your life group. If it's Greg Kenyon, if it's your teacher, if it's the lovely uh, Kara Gaylord, who's your, your teacher. I'm partial to that one. You get, you, get a, you get a limited, imperfect vessel. But the Word is the Lord's. So you want to be teachable, right? Let me give you just one way. Are you poised always to hear His Word? So you come in here and God's people are gathered and we're sharing it together. And let's just say I've made this connection. It's more with men than women by my lights, but I, I just think it's a good example that sort of represents a broader thing. Somebody comes in, he's a grown man, grown man. He's like consistently just sort of out of sorts and doesn't love the music and doesn't connect with the preaching and you know, kind of just doesn't like it. Just doesn't like it. And he goes on for a while. He's just like kind of grumbly dude, right? You know, and he's competent in all these other areas of his life. But he walks through those doors or the doors of another church. And he's kind of in this spot where he's just like, ah, I don't know, I don't know. And then you realize, you probe a little bit. And he's a guy who consistently on Saturday night stays up until 2 a.m. And he doesn't connect the dots. Maybe, I mean... I have my limitations. I'm not, you stayed up until 2 a.m. and I'll be your spiritual caffeine, good. Right? I'm, I'm like adequately good. I'm just gifted the way I'm gifted. But if you stayed up, to, I mean, I get it. If you can't sleep, you can't sleep. But where you have a stewardship, are you poised to come in ready for the word? Is that what you want? What do you want? What do you want to hear? You want something funny? You want violent stick-breaking? Uh, a story that's moving, you want the right politics, um, you know, you want some practical advice, all, all of that's fine, all of that's fine. But what you have to have, regardless of what else is going on in the world, is you have to have the Word of God open, and we've got to share it together, because that's what guides your life, that's what directs your soul, and not just for this life, but for eternity. Are you always poised? Do you have a heart for, a hunger for, an appetite for, a focus on what does God say in his word that I need to remember, that I need to learn, and that I need to receive? Do you have an appetite for that? Because that's the best we can offer you. But I just tell you, brothers and sisters, that's everything. Right? That's what you have to have this morning. Two things. Follow the good shepherd and listen to his voice. Let's pray. God, thank you again for your word, Zechariah, uh, how we can be inspired through the ministry of Zechariah, how you work to reach a people who just didn't deserve it. And boy, can we relate. 
So grateful for Jesus. The good shepherd who came and was rejected, and yet you worked the ultimate good out of the worst act of evil in human history so that we could know you, so that we could be saved. And for believers who start to drift, sheep who start to wander, we pray for their best, a refocus, a revitalization. For somebody who's just, oh, that's right, they, they just hear the message. I need to believe in Jesus. He's the good shepherd who laid down his life for me. Would you do that for our joy and for your glory? Um, because he is that. He's the one who made the way. And we praise you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.